Today we have three verses for our scripture reading, all from the book of Genesis. The first one is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.31a. God saw all that he made, had made, and it was very good. Genesis 12.1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly I must curse, so that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. This is God's word. Please join me. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you um, for your word, Lord. Thank you for the worship music this morning, God, as it prepares our heart to receive your word, Father. I pray for Morgan as he preaches this morning, Father, that you would use him, God, and um, speak through him, Lord, and that we would carry these words with us um, throughout the week, Father, and it would sink deep into our hearts, Lord. And I ask these things in your name. You may be seated. Good morning. Settled. So when I was preparing this message, <clears throat> I knew the Patriots were going to play the night before, and that <clears throat> it would either be a fun message because everyone would be happy, as we all are today, because the Patriots won, or there would be this spirit of not happiness because we lost, but I don't have to deal with that. And I was, as I was preparing, I'm like, well, I don't really need to deal with that situation because the Patriots aren't going to lose. But it was on the back of my mind. And so what I was going to say is, since we're studying the book of Genesis, the Patriots are on a new beginning for next year. But now, I don't have to say it, but I did, and it still wasn't funny. <laughs> uh, my name is Morgan. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm one of the associate pastors here. I'm going to be preaching this morning. Kyle is is here with us, but he'll be um, going on vacation and sabbatical for the next two weeks. And so myself and Joe and Mark will be preaching for the next few weeks. And so please keep Kyle in your prayers as he's away, that he just comes back refreshed. Well, first that he comes back, and then <laughs> and that he's refreshed and, and ready to handle us. So, but what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to introduce our next sermon series, which is going to be on the book of Genesis. Um, the book of Genesis is pretty an exciting book, um, and so we're going to do a sermon series on it. It's probably not going to, we're not going to go verse by verse, as it's got 50 chapters, and we figured we should do something else in this year as well, besides just Genesis. And even doing it this way, it's still probably going to take a long time, <laughs> just because there's so much stuff in the book. And so the goal we'll see today, I'm going to just give an overview of the whole book, and then from, for the next, I don't know how many weeks after that, all our sermons will come from the book of Genesis as we walk through it. But today we'll just kind of give us the overview. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do talk about, though, as we do study the book of Genesis, we want to be mindful that we will see Jesus Christ in the scriptures and in Genesis, and that we should just kind of have that in the back of our mind, is what is this sermon going to teach me about Jesus, and it's not always going to be specific or very easy to identify, 
but it, it, it'll be there. And one of our jobs as the, as the preachers is to try to bring that out. But it won't always be easy where we'll be able to say, oh, here's Jesus, or here's Jesus. Others just might be principles that we find or different ways. But Jesus did say to us that he is in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and throughout uh, John 5, 39. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that, that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. And this he spoke to the Pharisees as they were um, dialoguing. And he was criticizing them because they studied the scriptures, but they missed the point of the Messiah. Uh, and then in Luke 24, he said, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is very clear that he is in the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Old Testament scriptures, because when Jesus said these things, those were the only scriptures. So the only scriptures that the, when the New Testament refers to the scriptures, they're referring to what we call the Old Testament, because um, that's what they had. And here specifically in Luke 24, Jesus actually refers to, uh, well, can't, I don't know why, it works on the wall. That's weird. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus refers to the law of Moses specifically, which is one of the first books that um, we'll talk about, well, which is the book of Genesis is part of that law, and we'll see that as we go along. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Jesus is in all scriptures, and that's what we should be looking for. And um, the way I like to study the, the Bible, especially when we do like an introduction like this, is to think of the idea of a puzzle. And so each piece of the puzzle, each message is another piece of the puzzle that brings out the picture of Jesus in that particular book. So as we do these messages on the book of Genesis, each piece is a different puzzle. So I mean, each sermon is a different puzzle piece. And so by the end, we'll have a hopefully clearer picture of who Jesus is and, and what God is doing in the book of Genesis. Um, and so as you find the corner pieces and you make the edge, um, that's what we're going to do today. So today, as an introduction, we're like building the frame of the puzzle and making the... Because whenever you do a puzzle, at least that's how I'd like to do them, you always dump them out and you separate all the pieces. And you find all the edges and then you put the frame together first. And that gives you something to work with. And that's kind of like what today is. Today is going to be building the frame for the book of Genesis that will give Kyle and the rest of the preachers what to work with as we, um, as we study this book. So we're going to just jump right into it. And first thing we're going to look at is placement and title. This, one of these is kind of easy um, for placement. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. <laughs> so it's not hard to find. Um, it's right there. <laughs> um, but when you look at, I use this illustration of the Bible as a bookshelf because it kind of helps us to separate the books. The Bible is made up of 66 books between the Old and the New Testament. And we can divide the bookshelf, the, the, each testament, into its own bookshelf. And then each shelf is a different kind of poetry because each book is a different style of writing. And it's good to know the style of writing that, that you're studying because the way something is written, written is going to help you um, determine how it's interpreted. Because like a history book is going to be interpreted one way as opposed to a poetry book. Um, 
So it's just good to know what kind of literature is. And so the Old Testament is divided into three shelves, that being history, poetry, and, and prophets. And even in the, ver in the last verse that we quoted from Luke 24, Jesus says, you know what, I, what was written of me in the law of Moses, the poetry, and the prophets. And so this is a common way to divide these books. Um, but notice that these first five books are separated unto themselves. And so while these first five books are on the history shelf, they are history, um, they have a greater, not a greater, but a different emphasis, and that is the emphasis of the law. And now these first five books have many names, many also known as. So the, they're known as the Pentateuch, the Torah, and then you have the law, the law of Moses, the book of Moses. All of these refer to the first five books. The Pentateuch is the Greek, it comes from the Greek name, the, the word penta is the Greek word for five, and then the other word we get took from is like scrolls and stuff, so it means five scrolls. That's kind of like the, the name that the Christians use. So in your commentaries and study Bibles, if it mentions the Pentateuch, this is what it's talking about. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. The Jewish people call it the Torah, um, and so when they refer to the Torah, and uh, conservative Orthodox Jews will, will talk about that a lot, because for the Orthodox Jews, the Torah is like the main Bible, and it's almost more inspired than the rest of the Bible, um, from their perspective, not, not from our perspective. Like, you know, we believe all scripture is inspired, even the ands and the thes and the, and the first nine chapters of Chronicles that, you know, if you can't sleep, you read about those. And, um, but then you have the law, the law of Moses, the book of Moses. Those are all um, references that we actually see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. So anytime you hear any of those names, it's referring to those five books as a group. Um, now, it's pretty easy to see why Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the law, because that's what the subject matter is all about. Genesis as considered law is kind of hard just because there's nothing lawish about it. Um, again, Leviticus is nothing but laws. Do this, don't do that. Mostly, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> um, but again, now Genesis is different in that it's the story of beginnings. And so we don't have a lot of, like, giving of the law and stuff, but it is considered the first part of the law. So even when we say the law, we are still referring to Genesis. Now, the, we believe in, as we'll see, like, the author, like, the, everyone, all of these books were written by the same person at the same time to the same people for, like, the same purpose almost. So a lot of this stuff that we're going to consider in this message, like authorship and those things, would apply to the rest of the books of law as well, because they're all written by the same person. We're only going to consider the book of Genesis as an individual. We're really not going to, we're not going to look at the rest of the books, but those, some of those things that we say would apply to them. So when you, we do a study in Exodus, we'll already be ahead, and we'll say, I'll just listen to the Genesis tape, and, but... Anyways, so that's, the, that's where the book is in the Bible. Um, it's, it's right there. It's the very first one. <laughs> um, which is interesting when we think about the title of the book, which is Genesis. The word Genesis means the origin or coming into being of something. 
So what came first, the title of the book or the fact that the book was first on the shelf? You know, like Genesis is a word that we use now in our society to mean the beginning of something. But it came into our society because it is the first book in the Bible. The word Genesis itself comes to us from the Greek word of the Hebrew word. Um, It's from the Greek term genonosis which is translated the first Hebrew word, Bereshit, in Hebrew, which is the first sentence in the the book of Genesis, in the beginning. So the phrase in the beginning is one single word in Hebrew, and then it's translated in Greek into Genesis, Genesis, which is then where we get the word Genesis from. If you can trace all that. (laughs) I found this slide. I thought it was interesting. I like it because it has the pyramids, because I like the pyramids. I was, I've always been interested in Egypt, and I believe that the pyramids are pre-flood technology, so that's why they're in the beginning. Um, so now there's the first heresy of the day. <laughs> Modern archaeology would say that the pyramids were built by uh, Moses and the slaves, which is another good possibility, but... We won't go down that road. So anyways, I just found it online. I thought it was a cool picture. But you can see, so the English word Genesis comes from the Greek word, which comes from the Hebrew word, all which translates that one phrase, in the beginning. And so Genesis just simply means in the beginning. And that's why we um, call it that. And it's also in the beginning of the Bible. It's the first book. (laughs) Now, uh, the Greek word is also used to translate this Hebrew word, tola dot. I, don't, I have no idea if that's how we say that or not. But this word, toledot, is um, the word where we get generation, the word generations from or begat. Uh, this little thing explains it. It says, the book of Genesis is most naturally divided by the repetition of the Hebrew expression, Eli teledot, which means these are the generations, sometimes translated as begat. The word toledot is related to a word that means to father, to give birth. It refers to the origin of a family or a nation. And so I mention this because many scholars um, divide the book of Genesis by using this repeated phrase. Uh, so i just give you two examples of this. I don't know. It's a little hard to see. But what you see here is this is an outline of the book of Genesis using the, the word toledot or generations. And so it breaks down into 10 or 11 subjects. And so the Genesis is about these different families. So the, the family of heaven and earth, the family of Adam, the family of Noah, and so on. And it breaks down. And that's one way that is outlined, one way that you can study it. Um, I throw that out there because it's a popular way. And it is from the word, you know, um, where Genesis comes from. But that's about all we're going to say about it because I don't like it. <laughs> And so, I, and what I don't like about this is just too detailed for our study, for an introduction, and for what we're gonna, how we're going to study the book of Genesis here. We're not going to use this outline because we would be here for the next three years trying to study all the families. So it is, but it would be good and helpful for um, your personal study. So instead, we're going to return to the idea of the puzzle, and what we're going to do is we're going to look and find the corner pieces. Saying you got to find the corner pieces first when you do the puzzle, right? Because you have something to anchor to, and it's something okay. It's easily identified, and then you can build from there. 
So the four corner pieces in Bible study are who wrote the book, where are they, who received the book, and where are they. So basically, who, who wrote it and where are they when they wrote it, um, who received it, who's he writing to, and where are they. And when you know these things, it just gives you a better idea of what's going on. Just because, like, if someone in New England writes a letter to someone down south, it's good to know that they're in New England because they might use a phrase that's only used in New England. Like, hey, I had wicked good coffee milk and a grinder this morning. Now, if you interpret that down south, they're going to be like, wow, that milk, which I don't, they put coffee in, was really bad. But if you know that you're from the south, I mean, if you know that the author was in the north when he said he had wicked good coffee milk, you're going to know, wow, he really enjoyed his milk that this morning. Because that's just how we talk. I don't know why in New England wicked got to be a good thing, but <laughs> maybe it's because of the snow. I lived in Texas for a while, and the first thing anyone ever said to me when I met them was, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> and I would say things like, wow, that's wicked awesome. And they would just look at me like, it's evil? Evil's awesome? You know, I thought you were in seminary. You know, like <laughs> so anyways, these are our four corner pieces, and this is, will be kind of the outline for the next few minutes that we're going to look at. And so first, let's talk about who wrote the book. I'm going to just tell you, Moses wrote the book. <laughs> there's no author in the, in the book of Genesis. There's no byline. Like in the New Testament, we have a lot of um, bylines, so we know who did it. Um, Genesis doesn't have the author recorded for us. Plus, the subject matter of Genesis, the author wasn't present for it. Um, so there is no way for us to say, to look at something in Genesis that shows us that Moses wrote it. However, um, all conservative scholars agree that Moses, Moses wrote it, both Christian and Jew. Oh, I was supposed to do that earlier. Moses wrote it. <laughs> both Christians and Jewish scholars agree that Moses wrote it. And that is if you're a good scholar. No, I shouldn't say good. If you're a, Christian, a conservative scholar, there, there is other views, liberal views, as to um, who wrote it. That you know, They say it wasn't Moses. Um, those views really aren't worth us exploring this morning because they're, they're wrong, first of all. So um, it's just not worth it. And especially because while some do disagree, Jesus and the biblical authors don't disagree. Throughout the Bible, and Jesus himself referred to Moses as the author of the book of Genesis and the first five books. That's why it's called the book of Moses. Or in Luke 24, we say, Jesus said, what was written me in the law of Moses. So the New Testament and Old Testament writers all agree that Moses wrote it. Um, the theory that Moses didn't write it comes much later, and it's, and it's from liberal scholars, not orthodox scholars. So it's really not worth exploring. And it's, not, and it's a crazy theory, too, and so I'm not going to go into it. Um, so what I do want to talk a little bit quickly about is who is Moses? What is Moses' life like? So we'll look at him for a moment. The life of Moses. Despite what we know Moses as, he probably didn't look like that. <laughs> and probably didn't have a big, booming voice. You know, it's funny when we... When you see the, the life of Moses is spelled out for us in Exodus and then no, it was all through the, the books of Moses. One of the things that happens when God speaks to Moses and sends him back to Israel, he protests and says that he can't speak and says that he's not a well speaker. And God actually finally says, okay, fine, I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you and he'll speak through you as well. 
But when we watch like Moses and the Ten Commandments and stuff, that's not what we see. We see Charlton Heston in this big booming voice who never says anything wrong or like stutters or anything. But that's probably not who Moses was. Um, but anyways, his life is divided into three sections or three 40-year periods. Uh, those dates are all B.C., but Moses in, in Pharaoh's court, Moses in exile in Midian, and then Moses with Israel in the wilderness. Uh, it's funny, Moses lived to be 120 years old. He died um, right before they went into the promised land, not because he was um, sick or dying or anything, but because his mission was over. And he had kind of disqualified himself from going into the promised land, and so... Um, Right before they enter the promised land, Moses dies. So he, now, Moses is Hebrew, but he was born at a time during Egyptian slavery. And the people of Israel, um, the Egyptian king had issued a, a law saying all male children were to be killed because the Egyptians were growing too much. They were slaves in Egypt, and as a population, they were getting to be too big and too strong and the Egyptians feared that they would um, have an uprising and, and, and revolt and not be slaves anymore. And so they had a law that any male babies were to be killed. But when Moses was born, his parents and uh, the people that helped his delivery um, saw something special in him. And so they hid Moses for three months. And then after three months, they um, realized they can't hide him anymore. I don't know how they hid a, three month, a baby for three months either <laughs> without anyone knowing. Maybe they thought Moses was a girl for a little while. I don't know. But after three months, they realized they couldn't hide him anymore. They put him in the Nile River, and he was found by the queen, one of the queen uh, princesses of Egypt, and she adopted him, and Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt. Near the end of when Moses was about 40 years old, I don't know how he realized, but he found out that he wasn't Egyptian, that he was actually Hebrew, and then decided that the Egyptians were mistreating the Hebrew people and that they shouldn't be doing that. And he saw a fight between a Hebrew and an Egyptian, and he stepped in to stop the fight and ended up killing the Egyptian. And he buried the guy in a shallow grave and kind of left and went back and just kind of pretend like it didn't happen. <laughs> but then the next day, he was out with the Hebrew people, and another fight broke out, and I think this time between two Hebrews, and Moses kind of intervenes and says, hey, what are you doing? You guys are like brothers. What are you fighting for? And one guy says to him, what, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And so now Moses freaks out because he's like, oh, <laughs> they know I killed someone, and which is interesting. How would they know? Because the guy he didn't kill most went and told people, hey, this prince just saved me, you know? Because, again, Moses is, is the, a prince of Egypt at this time. So he gets all freaked out and um, realizes that he's now a known murderer. And he flees and he goes to the desert of Midian. And he's there for the next 40 years. He's hiding from Pharaoh and he stays there uh, basically until Pharaoh dies. And so he's out and about just living his life. He has no idea. Like, he knows he's Hebrew, but... He, you know, he feels rejected by the Hebrew people. He's living on the lamb as a murderer from Egypt, and he's just there. And then at the end of the 40 years is when God speaks to Moses. So the whole burning bush thing, God comes, calls to him from the burning bush, and says, I've heard my people, their cries to be released from slavery, and I'm sending you back to Egypt to, to, send, to let my people go. I should have played that song. <laughs> but um, 
And so that's the last year of Moses' life, which is amazing. Moses is 80 years old before he even got the call to go be the leader that he was. So as we get old, we don't have to think like, oh, we can't do anything for God. Moses was 80. He had, Moses probably didn't even think he would ever do anything for God. Um, and yet, here he is, 80 years old. God calls him and brings him back. And so he goes, he lets people go. They go out in the desert and, um, to worship God and stuff. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens. And, and then he dies. So that's kind of like the life of Moses. Um, totally forgot. Next slide. <laughs> This pretty much says everything I just said about the life of Moses. Uh, so he is an Egyptian. Uh, he was educated in Egyptian in Egypt. That's one thing to keep in mind because one of the protests against Moses, Moses as an authorship is people say Moses didn't know how to write. Well, that's just stupid because he was an Egyptian prince. The Egyptians knew how to write. Moses was educated by the Egyptians. He would have known how to write. Um, so he's all these other things. What weakness, though, he failed to enter the promised land because of disobedience to God. So we have to do, remember, like, disobedience has its consequences, and, and just because you're great leaders and in positions and stuff doesn't immune us. Um, they used to think, be like that in politics. I guess if you're a Clinton, it's okay, because it, it doesn't matter, but now everything you do says and matters. But I guess I shouldn't be saying that, huh? Anyways, lessons from his life. This is often the Life Application Study Bible, which is a great Bible um, if, you, if you need a study Bible. But it says, God prepares, then uses. His timetable is life-sized. God does his greatest work through frail people. And so remember, Moses was 80 when God called him, but he prepared him during that whole time. But God's timetable is, is a lifetime. Like, we think, like, things happen, and I, I've had things happen that, you know, I thought I would be a teacher forever at a certain place, and that place doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so God has a different timetable than I have. Um, and just because some things happen doesn't mean God's done with us. Um, vital statistics is just where he was and all that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I wanted to read, this is an excerpt from, from the Life Application Bible. I just thought it was really good. So in Moses, we see an outstanding personality shaped by God. But we must not misunderstand what God did. He did not change who or what Moses was. He did not give Moses new abilities and strengths. Instead, he took Moses' characteristics and molded them until they were suited to his purposes. Does knowing this make a difference in your understanding of God's purpose in your life? He is trying to take what he created in the first place and use it for his intended purposes. The next time you talk with God, don't ask, what should I change into? Instead, ask, how should I use my own abilities and strengths to do your will? And I want to share that with you because this is how God works with us. When we get saved, we are a new creation. But he doesn't take our personalities away. He doesn't take our characteristics away. He transforms them into Christ-likeness. And the abilities that he gave us, he transforms those into abilities to be served for his kingdom. And so when we become Christians, we don't become robots. We don't become different personalities. We're still the same people, but God wants to mold those personalities into Christ-like behavior and use them to further his kingdom. And that's what I think is awesome about Christianity, because it's still individual. Christianity is an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we don't have um, where you come and you do the same thing and this and that. You know, 
you are you and I am I. And we're not going to do the same things the same way. And that's good. And that's what God wants to do. And that's what God did with Moses. Moses was prepared to be the leader of Israel because he was raised as a prince of Egypt. And he knew all these different things and had those abilities. He didn't pick someone else to be the leader because they didn't have those abilities. And so God is going to use you where you're gifted. And so my suggestion is find what you like. Find where you're gifted. If you like kids and hanging out with kids, teach in Sunday school. If you don't like kids, don't volunteer for Sunday school. <laughs> Some people will say, oh, you should volunteer for Sunday school even if you don't like kids because God will give you that special ability. And I say, I don't think God works that way. God's going to use your abilities that you have already. And so, you know, but if you do like kids, do volunteer. But there are plenty of things that can be done in the things that you like to do. And that's one of the things we learned from Moses. All right. So this last, here, the vital statistics says, like, where Moses spends his time, Egypt, Midian, and the wilderness of Sinai. And that's going to lead us to our next little corner piece, which is where are they? Where is Moses when he wrote this book? And the simple answer is um, Moses wrote during the years of Israel's wandering in the desert. And so that would give us the date between 1450 and 1410 B.C. of when this was written. So everyone agrees that the book of, that the Pentateuch was written during the time when they were wandering in the desert the, during the last 40 years of Moses' life. And it's, I, I accept that. that. That works pretty well. Um, there is a possibility that maybe he wrote the book of Genesis during the second 40-year period of his life when he was um, in exile in Midian. The, um, because, again, everything that happens in Genesis is... is not, Moses wasn't there for. Everything that is written in Exodus, Gen Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses was present for those things. The, the, all the other books in, in the Pentateuch um, are real-time events for, for Moses. But the book of Genesis is, is previous to that. So, so for example, the, in the book of Numbers, it's all about them wandering in the desert and where they went and what happened and why they did it. So obviously, it had to be written at least when it happened, if not after. But with the book of Genesis, there, there's nothing like that. Moses obviously wasn't alive at the same time as Adam and Eve. <laughs> so he could have possibly wrote it during the time of Midian. It, and I also do tend to believe that Moses probably did research about who the Hebrew people were when, once he discovered that he was Hebrew himself. Because Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt, but then he found out that he was actually Hebrew, and when he did, he, he accepted it, and he became Hebrew, and so he must have done research into who are these Hebrew people, where did they come from, why are they slaves in Egypt, and Genesis answers all those questions, so um, it's definitely possible that he did that during the second year, the, sec the 40 period, the exile in Midian, the only problem with that view is why would he have written it down? He didn't know that he was going to be the leader of Israel and that they were going to be a great nation that would need to know the stuff in the book of Genesis. So he doesn't really have any reason to write it down until the last 40-year period of his life when they are wandering in the, book of, in the desert. So that's why it makes more sense that that's when he wrote it. Um, 
but he could have done it other. And the other thing is, where did Moses get the material for the book of Genesis? He obviously wasn't there. Nobody was. Um, so there's two, two ways that that comes down to us. It, and it's oral tradition, and there probably was some written re records of, of the events. The amazing thing about, like, the flood, um, Noah's flood is, is the story that we have in the Bible about the worldwide flood. Every ancient culture has a flood story. It's just a little bit different. So in the ancient world, in Moses' day, there wasn't a question of was there ever a worldwide flood. Everyone agreed that there was. They just had different stories, different ways of explaining it. So there, it's very likely that there were written records as well. Um, Moses, Adam and Eve and all those people up to Moses, uh, up Noah and everyone, they lived hundreds and thousands of years and would have passed these stories on, again, through all tradition, but no reason why they couldn't have written too. Um, but anyways... So that brings us to our next little corner piece, who received the book. Now, again, Genesis doesn't tell us, um, but tradition is that, you know, it's the nation of Israel. Um, one writer says it this way. The purpose of Genesis is to supply the historical basis for God's covenant with his people. Genesis forms an indispensable prologue to the drama that unfolds in the book of Exodus. Uh, William M. L. DeWitt stated that Genesis was the foundation of the theocracy, showing that the people of God were gradually separated from others because their whole history was penetrated by a clear and constant plan of divine government of the world. So basically, Genesis is written to supply the nation of Israel with the foundation as to why they were to leave Egypt, sl Egyptian slavery and become their own nation and uh, that had their own land and who... God would use to bless the rest of the world. So it's kind of like the rallying point. Um, when Moses comes back, you know, and says to, hey, set my people go. We're, we're getting out of slavery. We got to get out of Egypt. The book of Genesis gives them the reasons why and the foundation. Like, because it would be very easy to just be like, well, how do you, you, you say we're a nation. <laughs> who, say, who says you that we are, you know? Um, in Genesis, we have the story as to why they are a nation and why they should be doing these things. And we'll see that as we go on. Um, so that's what Genesis does. It's kind of like the foundation of their history. And, and Genesis, the book, is the foundation of everything, really, of, of life, God. So everything that is foundational hap begins in the book of Genesis. And that's why it's there. <laughs> but like marriage, it's so funny because when you study... A lot of, one of the popular things we do when we study different books in the Bible um, that you find significant is when there's a first of something. This is the first mention of this or the first mention of that. In the book of Genesis, everything's first. <laughs> so they'll be like, oh, this is the first time Moses said the law. Well, yeah, of course it is because it's the first book. <laughs> this is the first instance of marriage. Yes, the first instance of marriage is going to be in the book of Genesis. So Genesis is filled up first. Of course it is, because it goes back to the very beginning. It starts off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, we really can't go back any further than that. It's like when people tell a story, and they're like, oh, how did your day go? Well, I woke up. Well, yeah, yes, I know you woke up. I'm talking to you. Or, you know, people yeah, say, hey, how are you? Well, you know, when I was a young boy, you know, I'm not looking to you to go that far back. Anyways... Is written to the to the nation of Israel. 
The next and last corner piece is where are they? So where is the nation of Israel when Moses is writing this book? Um, and it's they are wandering in the desert. Sounds like a fun thing sometimes, but it's a desert and they're wandering. Wandering is only fun for like a little while. They had to do it for 40 years. I'm going to give you a quick bullet point uh, history of Israel. <laughs> it sounds, oh, this is the early history of Israel. Ready? We'll do it. What's that song, the dance evolution, they do all the, never mind. All right, so we're going to see all this in Genesis. The history of Israel begins with Abraham. Abraham had many sons. Father Abraham had many sons, specifically the ones that we care about, uh, Isaac and Jacob. Well, Isaac is not Abraham's son, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the founding fathers of the Israel nation. Funny thing about Abraham, well, we'll talk more about this later too. So then Jacob had 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. These, all these people end up slaves in Egypt. All of that we see in the book of Genesis. Um, as they're slaves in Egypt, then they are delivered through Moses after 450 years of slavery. Moses brings them out to worship at Mount Sinai. When Moses goes to Egypt and asks for the people of Israel to be let go, their whole purpose is to go worship God at Mount Sinai. And there's this whole play that goes on between Moses and Pharaoh but Moses says, you've got to let my people go because we need to go worship God at Mount Sinai. And so that was the purpose. And eventually they, they let him go, and they go worship at Mount Sinai. And then they go and they spy out the land, but they don't go into the land. And this is a pivotal point in the history of Israel, especially in our talk this morning. And what we're going to see through Abraham, Abraham is promised a certain apostle, a certain amount of land, a certain place of land. And he hasn't got it yet at this time. And so Moses knows the land that they're supposed to go to because it was the land that was promised to Abraham. And so when Israel is now free from Egyptian slavery, they're supposed to go and take their land that God gave to them through Abraham. And they send out spies. They send out 12, 12 spies, one from every tribe. And 10 of the spies say, we can't do it. It's, there's giants in the land. We can't take it. Two spies, however, are, are faithful and says, well, yeah, they're giants, but God's on our side. We can do anything. God gave us that land. He's telling us to go take it. It doesn't matter who's there. God gave it to us. Let's go get it. However, the nation as a whole sides with the, the ten unfaithful um, spies, and they don't go in and take the land. And that causes them to wander in the desert for 40 years because God gets mad at them and Per, and curses, not, I don't know if curses are right, but punishes them for not accepting the good report and to not going into the land. And so God is, makes them wander in the desert for 40 years and basically to kill all the people that were in charge during that time who said that God isn't strong enough to take us into the land. After the 40 years of wandering, uh, the desert generation dies, including Moses, and then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And this is basically a whole outline of the, of the Pentateuch. Um, Joshua leading them into the Promised Land begins the new section of the Bible of, um, with the book of Joshua and them taking the Promised Land. So when the book of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch is written is during that time when they're wandering in, in the desert for 40 years. And it's interesting too, though, because we would look at you know, the wandering in the desert as a bad thing. It was a result of a curse, and it killed everybody. 
pretty bad. The only people that didn't die, only leaders or adults that didn't die during the 40 years were the two spies who said, hey, we can take the land. The two spies that said, that said God is with us and we should go take the land are the only adults that didn't die during the 40-year period. And that was the purpose of the 40-year period. But during that time is when Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch, when he got the law from God and when he did all these things. So even though we look at it as, as a curse and a punishment, God still used it for good times. And so God uses the desert times in our lives to, to bring out good things. And so I just thought that was worse than him. So that's where they are. Israel is wandering in the desert for those 40 years. And it's interesting to know, too, like, if you are one of those people, I don't think they realized, like, hey, we're going to be doing this for 40 years. You know, like, after t 20 years, we're like, oh, man, we got another 20 years of this. Or, hey, Morgan's still alive, so we're not going in today. You know, I don't think they really knew that. I'm, I'm not sure how they realized that it was time to go into the promised land. Although Moses, I think, knew, and Moses was going to lead them. And maybe it says in there, it's been a while since I read those books, but Moses doesn't go because he was disobedient to God. He was supposed to, um, he was, had this illustration that he was supposed to use with God. Uh, and the illustration was supposed to illustrate Christ and stuff. And he, Moses ends up just like destroying the analogy of the illustration. And, um, and so God gets mad at him and doesn't let him go. It's an amazing thing. It seems kind of um, cruel and bitter, but. But so Moses doesn't go. He knew he wasn't going, and he hands the ladle of mantleship over to Joshua, and then they take him in. All right. So those are our four corners, and so now we're going to kind of tie this in a little bit further and just answer the question, what is Genesis all about? And this will help us fulfill the, the rest of our edges, and we'll have a nice frame. And so, most scholars divide the book of Genesis into two parts. Chapters 1 to 11, God's dealing with mankind in general. And then chapters 12 to 50, God's dealing with Israel in particular. And this is a very uh, common way to divide the book. It's, it's, it's pretty accurate. Um, this chart from Jensen's uh, Old Testament survey is a good illustration of that. And so what we see in the first 11 chapters is all about events. It's about creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And um, it's really about the race as a nation. It's about people as a whole, the human, human, humanity as a whole. And it's interesting. We don't know how. It's an undetermined amount of time. People will say like 2,000 years or different dates. It's at least 2,000 years. We really don't know how much time goes from... Uh, creation to the fall, from the fall to, the, to Noah's flood. Like, we can um, figure out where Abraham was and, and get time frames for that, but we have no idea how long um, Adam and Eve lived in the garden before they, they fell. And then we have no idea how long it was f between um, after the fall to the flood of Noah. Like, we just don't know. We can guess and stuff. And it's funny, you know, most people assume that the fall happened relatively quick. And the way it's presented in, in Genesis leads to that. Um, it just, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us how long they were in the garden. It just, like, says one day they were in the garden, 
And the serpent began to talk to Eve and said, why can't you eat from that, that tree? And Eve's like, oh, well, you know, that's a good question. So she begins to doubt God. But we, we don't know how long they were there. We don't know how long between Adam and Eve were created to the time that the serpent came and, and caused Eve to fall. And what's always interesting about that study, too, is Eve isn't surprised that the serpent's talking to her. I guess say, one of the things that would bother me the most if I was at the zoo was if the animals started talking to me. <laughs> I would think it was like one of those flashbacks that they told me so much about when I was a kid that never really happened. <laughs> but, you know, so that's the thing that always amazed me about that story. No one's surprised. And even Adam, and then it says Adam is like right there with her. Adam's not like, why is that snake talking? Or when Eve says, hey, the snake told me. Adam's like, you're crazy. You know, he's not like that. So there was obviously some kind of relationship between Adam and Eve and the animals that just, that we just don't have today. I mean, I like my dog and stuff, but he never talks to me. <laughs> but anyways, um, so we really just have no idea how long that time, Genesis 1 to 11, took. Um, but then the rest of the chapters, Genesis 12 through 50, is only about 300 years. Genesis 1 through 50 focuses on people. And specifically, it focuses on the family of Abraham. And it's really about the story about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so it's interesting that the book, you know, the first 11 chapters, which is about everyone in the world, is only 11 chapters. Not as many as 12 through 50. <laughs> and it's 2,000 years about everyone else. And then only 300 years, and then 300 years, Focusing on one family and one person. And because it's the chosen family, this, the, the history of Israel. Um, you know, people refer to the Jewish people as God's chosen people. And it's because they are. <laughs> they were chosen by God. Abraham was chosen by God. And the amazing thing about it is we don't know why. There was nothing about Abraham that said that God saw and said, hey, I should choose Abraham because he's a good guy, or he's young, or he's whatever. There's nothing there. Abraham's family are idol worshipers. Abraham is old when he gets chosen. Abraham was probably an idol worshiper himself, but God called Abraham, and Abraham responded. And we see that Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. And that's the same with us and as Christianity today. God chooses who he wants. Why, we don't know, because he loves us. Why he loves us, that I don't know. <laughs> but there's nothing in us as to why God would choose us. And there was nothing in Abraham as to why God would choose Abraham. And there was, and um, so we'll see all that as we study the book. This is another chart that I found helpful. This is, uh, I subscribe to this, these emails from Rose Publications. Rose Publications puts out these handy charts, and they email free charts all the time, and this was one of them. And now this chart divides Genesis into three instead of rather into two. And it just splits it up a little differently. So they just take the origin of the world, chapters one and two, and they separate it from the origin of the nations. It, and it, this works as a good outline as well. The, so the themes that we see in chapters one and two is creation, God's sovereignty, humans as God's image, and human responsibility. And these are all topics that we'll, we'll tackle. Um, Creation is an interesting thing, especially in our society today. Many people don't accept biblical, the account of biblical creation. 
Um, and in years past, I don't think it's as bad as it is today, uh, it, people almost made it a salvific issue. Like, if you believe in evolution, you can't be a Christian. And that's, that's not true. To be a Christian, you believe one thing. Jesus Christ is God who died in your place. You're a sinner, and you need salvation. You can't pay for your, you can't pay for your sins. Jesus did it for you. That's it. You know, that's the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins, and, we didn't, and evolution is false. <laughs> now, evolution is false because it goes against what the Bible teaches. But there's a difference between accepting everything that the Bible teaches and accepting the gospel. Um, but as you accept the gospel and as you grow in your Christianity, most likely you're going to come to the conclusion that evolution is false um, because it's anti-biblical. It goes against the account of creation in the Bible. And regardless of what we say about it, Jesus accepted creation. So again, like, just like we say we, we're going to accept Moses as the author of the book of Genesis because Jesus did, well, Jesus accepted historical creation and historical Adam and Eve as well. Um, so there's another reason to accept it. But these are all things that we can talk about as we study the, the book of Genesis. What I wanted to do now is just to wrap up, is to just go through um, the family of Abraham. Because the family of Abraham is really what the story of Genesis is all about. After, again, it's the, the majority of the book is about the family of Abraham and Abraham and what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is a promise that God made to Abraham that he would give him three things, land, descendants, and blessings. And it comes, the first foundation, the first giving of this covenant is in Genesis chapter 12 that Heather read for us this morning. And in that, God promises him the, these three things. And later on in Genesis, in Genesis 15, he tells him exactly what the, what, which land it is that he's going to give him. And so that's why Israel knew what land they were supposed to go take because God told Abraham what land it was. And this is why there's still conflict in Israel today, because Israel does not possess the land that Abraham was told was given to him. In fact, throughout Israel's history, even at their greatest point, they never completely possessed all that land. And we believe that Jesus Christ is going to return and rule from Israel, and at that time, the land promised to Abraham will be fulfilled. And that's one of the reasons why our eschatology believes in a, a literal fulfillment of these promises. Because the rest of these promises have literally been fulfilled. Abraham is, has descendants that are numerous beyond the stars of the sea, is what it was explained to him. And that's what it is today. The Jewish people are Abraham's descendants, and they, we don't, there's just millions of them. In addition to that, um, Abraham was also the father of Ishmael. If you look to the side on the left, um, Abraham had... had uh, a child with Hagar, someone with not his wife, and that's Ishmael. Now, Ishmael becomes the, is the father of the Arabs. And so today, the whole Arab race descends from Abraham, as well as the whole Jewish race descends from Abraham. And so the promise of descendants has literally been fulfilled through Abraham. And interesting enough in the Bible, when Ishmael is born, it says that he will always have conflict with his brothers. And so the Arab-Israeli conflict that we see today is, goes all the way back to the Bible, and it's never going to be fulfilled completely because the Bible tells us that they will always have conflict with one another. And that is something that 
many modern politicians don't factor in to their foreign policy. And then the other thing is the other third part of the covenant is blessings. He tells that God tells Abraham that blessings to the world will come through the nation of Abraham and through Abraham's descendants. And that ultimate blessing is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes through the line of Abraham. But another interesting part of the blessings to Abraham, God says in, 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 again, in the verse that Heather read, God says to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And I believe that that should drive our foreign policy. And I was excited when we decided to move our embassy from, from um, Tel, Aviv, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, according to the Israeli people. <laughs> uh, we as a nation and all the countries of the world don't have a right to tell Israel where their capital is. And that's what they're trying to do. And President Trump is bold enough to say, okay, you, you say your capital is in Jerusalem, I'm going to agree with you and we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem. But I also see it as a fulfillment of Genesis 12 where God says those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. So being friends of Israel is a good foreign policy idea. Um, so this covenant that was given to Abraham first in chapter 12, then repeated in chapter 15, is then passed to Isaac. It isn't passed to Ishmael. Even though Ishmael is Abraham's son and is, has many descendants, it's not a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. Ishmael was given his own covenant that did include descendants, and that's why the Arabs are the numerous people that they are today. Then Isaac has two sons as well, Jacob and Esau. And the, the blessing, the Abrahamic covenant, is passed from Isaac to Jacob. It wasn't given to Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn, and it technically should have went to Esau, but Esau sold his birthright and all these other things, and we'll see all this in the book of Genesis. Um, and then from Jacob, Jacob is then renamed Israel by God, and then Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. He actually has, it, the numbers kind of skew, but the, his 12 sons end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's actually more than 12, and it's funny how it all works out, because Levi become the priests, and they're not counted as in the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Joseph, who is Abraham, uh, Jacob's last son, he has two sons, and there's no tribe of Joseph. The, Joseph's two sons replace Joseph as, as the heir of the promise. And so his two sons of Manasseh and Ephraim, they become part of the 12 tribes. And the two people that are taken out are Joseph and Levi. Because Levi is the tribe of priests, and they're not counted as the 12 tribes. So the 12 tribes are all those other people. But then at the, at the end of Jacob's life, he is pronouncing blessing on all of his children. And he pronounces a blessing on Judah that says that Judah will be um, the, king, the king tribe and that he will rule over the other tribes. And so the Abrahamic covenant is then fine-tuned and passed through the tribe of Judah. And then later on in the Bible, um, from the tribe of Judah is David, and David is given the Davidic covenant, which is a promise by God that whenever there is a king in Israel, it will be from the family of David. And then from David's line, eventually comes Jesus Christ, who is 
and, and then God gives the new covenant, which is actually promised in Jeremiah, but fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And these covenants all go back to the Abrahamic covenant. The purpose of the Davidic covenant and of the new covenant is so the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. And so Jesus Christ comes. He is in the line of David. And um, he inaugurates the new covenant. And that's what we see at communion. Jesus even says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is a reference back to the giving of the new covenant, which replaces the Mosaic covenant, which isn't on this chart. The Mosaic covenant is actually a separate covenant that was given to the nation of Israel. And it's all the law of Moses. And that's in Exodus and Leviticus. And if they had kept the law, then the Abrahamic covenant would have been fulfilled because God would have blessed them. Whereas the law is a, is a conditional covenant. If you obey, I will bless. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and even the new covenant are unconditional. God says, I am going to do this regardless of how you behave. And so that's what is the foundation of Genesis. It's all about the fulfillment. Or, well, it's the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is all um, what we're going to see in the book. And then I just have this conclusion, which I can't see over there, so I'm going to have to read from here. It says, in the book we see that God is the creator of all things, the world, the nations, and Israel. Creation begins a story of relationships. God wants to relate to his creation, especially to humans. Although God created all things good and was pleased with them, humans abused their freedom and because of sin broke the relationship with God, with each other, and with nature. However, God's grace extended to humanity. Instead of leaving them in their rebellion and corruption, God promised to act directly to solve the human predicament. He announced the coming of the one who would crush the head of the deceiving serpent. On the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head. God began his plan of restoration by choosing the family of Abraham to start over. God made a covenant with Abraham. God relates, guides, rescues, and provides for the family he has chosen. That's what we're going to see in the story of Abraham and his family, that God's always there for them. They mess up sometimes. They do some crazy things. And there are some crazy stories in the book of Genesis, but God's always there. And, and the amazing thing about the family of Abraham is that if you're a Christian, you are a member of the family of Abraham. God tells, uh, Paul writes to the Galatians that we have the same faith of, of Abraham and that there is no Jew, no Gentile, no Greek, no Roman, that we're all one in Christ and that we are all the seed of Abraham. And so the way we see God work in Abraham's life is the same way God wants to work in our lives. It's not going to be as dramatic as it was in the book of Genesis. And chances are, 2,000 years from now, people aren't going to be reading our stories. But it's still just as real. God is still the same God he was to Abraham is the same God he is to us. So with that, our little puzzle frame is complete, and we're going to take the next several Sundays, uh, who knows how long, but we'll be studying the book of Genesis, and now with the frame in, hopefully we'll be able to just see that picture of Christ a little bit clearer. So with that, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given us to, to study your word. Thank you for giving your word to us, and as we study throughout the book of Genesis and these foundations that we see, help us to show up our foundations in our relationship with you and that we can become uh, fruitful and have um, 
just Christ-centered lives uh, as we see the patriarchs do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at uh, this time we're going to have...